trustworthy, loyal, <laughs> helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. <laughs> It all started with the book-binding merit badge. <laughs> True. I didn't make it up. It all started with the book-binding merit badge. And now, Todd Patterson has become one of the leading book conservationists in America. The Boy Scouts are dangerous. <laughs> speaker tonight in this Rare Book School Forum, something more informal in which um, Todd encourages you to interrupt him by raising your hand if you have questions as he goes along. So something um, less formal than the long and boring, oh my god, the speaker's here, <laughs> than the Monday night lecture that we had. Um, our speaker began his book-binding career in the Boy Scouts, and I'm told spent his youth alternately playing tennis and binding books. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, you wouldn't guess it to look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the case. Um, he went to Switzerland uh, before he went to college, Nazareth College, and then eventually uh, got his MLS at Alabama. And now he works, um, as, uh, as he was described to me by one person this morning, as um, top dog in book conservation at the North American Document Conservation Center. And here he is, Todd Patterson. Well, thank you very much. And I hope that you'll all be able to hear me in the back. If you can't, just give me some kind of signal. And again, if you have a question, just kind of shout it out, and I'll try to do the best I can to create some kind of answer for it. Uh, if I make a little bit of a pause, I probably have something really profound to say, so that's the time to ask a question in front of me. <laughs> and I do want to give one disclaimer. Not everything that I show is something that I would consider to be a mistake. Um, and certainly a lot of the things that I might consider to be a mistake, they wouldn't have considered a mistake. Um, but I do want to show things that will let us know a little bit about how they're working. And I think sometimes mistakes really do a great job of, of doing that. And some things are just a mistake. I think in this case, we could blame either the person that put album on this binding, or you could blame the person that cased the binding in. Because the, the binding case was made separate from in this case, window mats that photographs went into. And only at the very end did they go together. So the person who cased it in may not have looked at the binding very well and had done it upside down. Now, why they didn't try to pick that album title off, which you could do with a needle or something like that, you'd still be able to see it a little, or you'd see that the, the binding had been damaged slightly. Uh, instead, they just turned it around, put a new album on, and even went so far as to put someone's initials on it so that they would be the proud owner of this particular album. I think it gets a little bit to the point of what they considered sellable and what they were able to sell. 
the other disclaimer I have to give you about this talk is that I love the laser pointer. <laughs> and most of this is just an excuse. The whole reason I put this talk together is an excuse to use the laser pointer. And when you leave and you think, God, he used the laser pointer so much, I would probably use it four times as much. I'm really restraining and holding back on this. <laughs> I first wanted to show a mistake that I made, because I think it's bad karma to say, oh, all these other binders made mistakes. I've never made a mistake. I've made hundreds of mistakes. Uh, and it's very easy to make a mistake. You might have been working on physics books or titles that had um, psychology in them, and then you have to do a golf label, and you don't think about it at all. You just set it up, and there it is. <laughs> So mistakes can happen all the time. Anytime that there's a human involved, and in fact, anytime there's a machine involved, mistakes can easily happen. I wanted to show you one historical example before we get to the 19th century. And this is a 17th century binding, which they, they never put up the end paper, the paste down on this. And it's nice because we get to see how they did their corners, we get to see how the leather was paired, we get to see that they use these leather thongs to sew on. They weren't using cords at the time. And there was also uh, a partial sheet of paper that was going to be pasted up and put up before they put the paste down. So something like this, which they may have not considered a mistake, uh, really can show us a lot. Now this is early 19th century. It's a leather volume. I think almost everything else I'm going to show you is actually cloth and what I would consider a publisher's binding, uh, although maybe not everything. But this is kind of a precursor to that. And I wanted to show you this to explain, again, what they thought was good enough to do, what they thought was good enough to sell. It's a, probably a sheepskin binding. They've got a leather label on it. If you look closely at the titling on this label, you'll notice that it slants a little bit uphill, which, trust me, is really easy to do when you're working with uh, type that you're trying to stamp by hand. But when they put this leather label on, it had pieces that were missing. This part was missing, and this part was missing. And they still went ahead, they put it on, and then they tooled over it. And you can see the gold line goes right over those missing areas. It's not something that chipped off afterwards. This was good enough for them. You know, eh, there's some pieces missing in it. So what? Who's going to notice? Who's really going to care? And I think it's only later in the 19th century that consumers started to care when they expected a product that was a lot more uniform and a lot more finished. So here's an early 1830s binding. Cloth was unfamiliar to them. They're used to working with leather. They're used to working with paper. Leather and paper stretch a little bit, but they were used to the way that it stretched. Some of the early cloth was fairly thin, and it would have this tendency to stretch a lot. And here, it stretched, they put it on a cover, and they got these huge wrinkles. So it's not so much a mistake on the binder's part as it's more unfamiliar, unfamiliar well, they just didn't know how to work with it. <laughs> and you'll also notice it's a leather label. Uh, a lot of books in the 1830s were uh, titled using either a paper label or a leather label. 
Uh, even once stamping comes in and they start to do stamp titles, they still do a lot of labels. Now they didn't like the way this cloth looked, so they tried many things to make it more appealing. They grained it, they stamped it, they changed the colors on it, and they also embossed designs into it. And this is a type of decoration called pre-ornamented cloth. And it creates a really beautiful design. I mean, the, you have this uh, central panel on the front and back boards. You have a spine, and it's, it has kind of a, a harmonious look to it. It's very appealing. Unfortunately, it has two problems to it. One, the spine piece is fixed. So whatever the design is, that's what the spine takes up, and then the boards act correspondingly. So you can see right here, this board is, uh, the decoration on this board is really close to the spine and may actually start to go up on the spine because the text of this volume is fairly thick. The other problem that you have is you're looking at the back of this when you're making this case. And so they have to put the cloth on without really seeing the design that well. And so it's very easy to get the design off in one direction or the other. So we see we have a lot of room down here, not very much room at the top. Now again, this is volume five out of a 10 volume set. If we look at volume seven from the same set, it's much thinner. So instead of having this text be too thick for the design, now the text is too thin for it. And instead of having that back board design be really close to the spine, instead it's too close to the edge of the board and actually goes off of it down at the lower bottom. It's one of the reasons why, although pre-ornamented cloth was very appealing and I'm sure people liked it a lot, it was really only practically around for three, four years uh, and didn't receive a lot of work. Uh, although it did have a, a, a spot on the spine where they could put the title in and change that for each particular volume. Now this is a similar kind of approach. You're doing a design that's specific for the spine, for the front and back board, and then you're fitting it on a certain size volume, but this is woven. It's not stamped, it's not embossed. Uh, they actually took gold thread and wove it with the blue thread to create the design. And you can see uh, right here that the thread kind of changes color for a little bit. And so this is not quite as yellow as it was before. Again, because you're working from the back and that it's a design shaped uh, to the board, it's very easy to get the board uh, offset, the design offset on the board in one direction or another. Now this is a publisher's binding. I would call it a publisher's binding. We know who the, the binder was on this. It was Wesley's in London. And I've seen many examples uh, of Heath's Book of Beauty, 1838, done in this binding. In fact, Rare Book School has one. Um, they were kind enough to bring it out today. If anyone wants to see this, very unusual binding. So this uh, might be a good opportunity to take a look at it. And again, this kind of experimentation uh, happened a lot in the 30s, and most of them died out very quickly. This lasted maybe two years. I think Heath's Book of Beauty for 1839 also has the same design because it just wasn't practical for the binder to work with. 
Now, paper was used throughout the 19th century, uh, but again, it's a fixed design for a fixed size book. If the binder doesn't trim the book very closely, or if he tries to use the same paper on a later printing, that for whatever reason the text is larger or they, they leave it larger, then it's going to seem like it's uh, not filling the space that it's supposed to be filled up. Obviously meant for a book that was smaller than this. Now they don't give up on paper, certainly, throughout the rest of the time period. And when they're printing on paper, they're printing the design before they use it. So they come up with a way to make it a little bit more accurate. And, and this is from the Scientific American article that appeared in October 1880. So now we're moving way back later in the, the century. And here we have a rotary cutter. And you can see pre-cut materials are just flying off this rotary cutter, which has these circular blades that cut things. And this is the case maker right here. So he's using these pre-cut materials. And he's also using a little jig. So he's able to set his jig up so that the material goes to a certain spot, front board has a place that it gets placed at, back board the same way, and then a little kind of area for the spine to go. And by using this, they can get a much better placement of their covering material onto the boards. So you can see this has very slight tolerances around the edges of where this gold uh, printed gold rule that's not stamped has to go. So it's from working with the materials over time, they get better, they come up with systems to work with this, um, but it's mostly only done in paper. They don't really come back to decorating a piece of cloth uh, in its entirety before they put it on the book. Now in the 1840s, they do start to decorate cloth again by printing on it, and they're printing usually patterns that are repetitive. They don't have necessarily a certain size. The whole cloth would be filled with this repetitive pattern. Wherever it ends at the end of the boards or at the fore edge or on the spine, it's fine with them. This particular pattern, though, does have, I believe, a direction. It has these flowers on a red background. We can see that it has a, a stem and it has some uh, leaves on it. It has uh, petals that make up the flower. So you would want this to be in a particular direction. <laughs> and you might say, boy, the person who made the case on the right really got that direction wrong. The flowers are all running downhill. It depresses me just to kind of look at it. <laughs> but in reality, it was the person who stamped the case that made the mistake. Until they stamped the case, it's, it's blank. It's just a canvas that could be turned in either direction. So the case maker wasn't paying attention for whatever reason, put it in what I would call upside down, and so you have the flowers running down as opposed to running <coughs> up. And this is Willis's sacred poem sometime in the late 1840s, um, both texts in this case. <coughs> this is another example of printed cloth. Printed cloth is something that I really enjoy. <coughs> Um, one, because it's, it's really garish and it, it, uh, it clashes with the stamping. And so it kind of amuses me that a bookbinder ever worked with it. And here we can see that there's a, a pattern of red and brown, and then there's this gold grid that's been put over it. 
And you might want to blame the binder for this again. I mean, people are always blaming the binder for all kinds of things. <coughs> but he's done his best to line this up because he's lined up the vertical direction really well with the front board. Because the cloth is misprinted, there's really nothing he could possibly do to get it aligned correctly. And every book that's, that's bound in this cloth is going to have the same problem. Whether he runs it in the vertical direction or runs it in the horizontal direction, this whole roll of cloth that's been printed this way is wrong. <laughs> yes? The one on the right, is there a blind stamp? Yes, there are blind stamps, and is that kind of around the outside edge here. Is that lined up correctly? I can't. Well, and that's part of the problem yeah. with these printed cloths is you can't really tell what's going on with the stamping, so you almost wonder why they stamped it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's blind stamps over here, too. Uh, and I think the blind stamping is done well, but that grid that's off you know, runs you know, kind of <laughs> at a crooked angle, really throws off everything else that's going on with the book. The problem is these cloths were really expensive. So they weren't just going to say, oh, we're never going to use this. They used it up until, uh, until they were done with it because they couldn't afford to not use it up. In fact, they would save every small scrap of it and use it wherever they could. This, again, is a fairly rare cloth pattern. You don't see it very often. I generally associate it with one Boston binder any corner that he clipped off, any little waste that he would have from cutting a, a piece down, he would save and use as an end band. And it's a fairly rare end band to see. Uh, there are some normal end bands that you see all the time. And then you see a couple of very unusual ones. And this is one of those. The reason you don't see it very often is there wasn't much of the cloth to begin with that the binder would have these little scraps from. Now this is also a printed cloth. It looks a little bit like just a silk cloth, and that's what they were shooting for. They printed this in two different colors to make it look like silk moiré. And I'm going to show you exactly how expensive they felt that this cloth was. <clears throat> At this particular time period, this is 1850, George Appleton. Um, he was selling this book, advertising it as, as uh, costing 38 cents. So it's not a very expensive book at all, even with this expensive cloth. It would probably take, and I've, I've heard different estimates, um, maybe two people working together over the course of a workday could make 1,200 cases a day. So they're definitely making more than a case a minute. Maybe they're making a case every 30 seconds. So one guy's cutting possibly 4,000 plus corners in a day. You could easily make the mistake. The cloth starts to pull away from the board right as you're cutting it off with your scissors. If you cut it off too short, I would just throw the case away. I mean, it takes you 30 seconds to make another case. That's, that's no time at all. Instead, on this particular book, they have taken a little scrap of that cloth, they've peeled the cloth back from the corner, inserted their piece of cloth, done the turn-ins for the little tiny piece, pasted up the rest of the cloth, and folded it back over. That would have had to have taken much more than 30 seconds. But again, the cloth is very expensive. They don't want to waste it at all. It's the only time I've ever seen a corner that they've repaired this way, or patched is a better way to say it. It's not truly repaired. How did you find it? I look at a lot of corners. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Much like being in the Boy Scouts, it's not something I talk about a lot, but you can, <laughs> you can trace some book binders based upon the corners. Different cities have different cornering techniques. I mean, these are the things that book binders think about. Um, we're a little strange. <laughs> so along with this is this, uh, this book is from the 1850s, and it's your typical 1850s book. You have this pictorial stamp on the front, a pictorial set of stamps on the spine. And then you have, which I'm sure you've all noticed, this sewn repair on the back. I mean, it's easy to see. It would be hard to miss this. And I've seen a lot of sewn repairs to leather, to paper, to parchment, all kinds of materials. They've always been done afterwards. Um, 50 years later, 100 years later, who knows? This was done before the stamping was done, because it's hard to tell from the slide, but the stamping actually goes through that sewn repair. And so you might think, well, you know, bookbinders, they don't do much of anything else, so maybe they were just doing this repair. Uh, I think that's unlikely. Uh, they must have noticed it the same way you noticed it, so they thought, well, this is okay. We'll, we'll case this book together, and we'll send it out into the world. Someone's going to buy it. I think this probably came from the roll of cloth that they cut this material from. Uh, I've seen rolls of cloth that I've worked with that have had tears in them that have been sewn up by the manufacturer. I believe they sew those up so that the tears don't continue into the rest of the cloth. Whoever was working that day didn't notice it, didn't care, cut the piece out, used this bad part of the cloth, and they put it into a book and sold it. I never know where to point this. Um, we're jumping around a lot in time, but I tried to put light things together a little bit. So we've kind of moved away from the outside of the case, and now we're looking at the, I won't say text block, because I know Michael doesn't like that. He's told us. We're looking at the sewn printed sheets <laughs> attached to the, the case of the book. <laughs> and here... They forgot to put the paste down the same way that they forgot to put the paste down in the 17th century binding. And you might think, well, no, there is a paste down here. It's right here, and then someone covered over this. This is not the paste down. This is what they used to attach the board of this book with. They had a waste sheet. They were transitioning from these bindings where they attached the boards first and then covered to the cases where they made up the case completely and then stuck them together at the end. So they had a waste sheet, they glued it up, stuck the board on it, and then moved on. So a very quick board attachment. Then they would slice that attachment at the head and tail so they could do their turn-ins, do the turn-ins from this paper that they were putting around, and then put up their paste out. And because they never put it up, we get to see the construction really well. Now, how could they forget to put it up? Well, here's this guy in the finishing part of the operation, and he's just sitting there and he's casing these books together. And he's doing hundreds and hundreds of them. You can see them stacked all over the place, ready to be cased, um, prepared to be put into a press where they would probably sit overnight while they would dry. 
So if someone asks him a question, you know, what did you do over the weekend? Um, probably not what movie he saw or anything like that. All they have to do is distract him for a second and he forgets what board he just opened and closed. And then we get these kind of mistakes. And notice, you know, the, the 1880 binding factory was a really great place to work. Everything's really clean, it's all very neat. <laughs> this is the time period I would have wanted to work in, 1880. <laughs> Here's another example. This is an 1835 Northampton imprint that, again, they just forgot to put up this paste down. We see that they used, instead of a whole sheet, they've just kind of used this uh, quarter sheet that they probably tore the rest off to attach the board again just by gluing it up a little. And if we look at this next slide, we can see exactly how this piece was trimmed with the rest of the text block. It was definitely part, oh, excuse me, Michael. Part of the printed sheets that were sewn together. <laughs> then the cloth gets turned around that, and it's the only way that it can be underneath the cloth is if that got put up first, then the cloth got put on second. And you're probably asking yourself, that's really great. Why do I need to know this? Who would really care? It tells us a lot about this. And I didn't choose this just because it's Todd's student manual. I didn't write this or anything to do with that. But this stamping was not done on the case. It was done to the piece of cloth before they put it on. And that's a big distinction. And it probably accounts for the reason why it's a little off-center and it's a little bit crooked. They couldn't possibly stamp it afterwards because when you put that cloth onto those boards, they were already attached to the printed sheets that were sewn together. So it's an awkward way to work for one. It's going to slow you down quite a bit. And it also means this particular publisher or binder out in Northampton, 1835, was probably not stamping this piece of cloth. He was probably getting the cloth from Boston with this image stamped on it. So this particular 1835 Northampton imprint I'm really interested in, and I've seen ones with other uh, titles, pictorial type of titles put on it. And of course, they would just say, we need something that says Todd Student Manual, send us a bunch of pieces of cloth. And they could put a book out that maybe looks a lot like the books that they were putting out in Boston, but they're actually doing it in, in Northampton. Now here's a case where I don't think it's a mistake. They didn't think it's a mistake. This is a, a book in boards. Uh, it's, uh, a Harper was the printer on this. It's 1825. None of this bothers me. I mean, it's not very good, but it wasn't meant to be good. This binding was not meant to be on here very long. And one of the ways that you can tell it wasn't meant to be on very long is the text actually, the printed sheets, stick out from the fore edge of the binding. So they're going to get beat around if this doesn't get rebound quite quickly. So I wouldn't consider that a mistake. But I would probably consider this a mistake. When they're attaching the end papers, whether they're sewing them on, tipping them on, whatever end paper construction that they use, they're doing it before they trim the volume if they're trimming it. And so here they probably thought, well, we'll put this size end sheet on. It's a little close, but we know that they'll trim it off and everything will work out fine. Well, they obviously didn't trim it off well. 
Uh, although it's a finished, I would consider this a finished binding. Um, and one of the other problems that it, it causes by not being finished off well is they end up putting glue over here on this slide leaf. So when you close it, part of that actually sticks over here, which is why you have this ragged edge. Now in this next one, you have a ragged edge because the printed sheets that were sewn got messed around in the bindery. And so if they got banged around, then when you go to put the paste down down, they're going to be having the mirror ragged edge from over there over here. And so we can see that the cloth and the board edge is in very good shape, so we know that damage didn't take place after the paste down was, was put down, but before it was put down. And you ask, well, how could that happen in that beautiful bindery that we just saw? And I think this is one of the indications. This is uh, Benjamin Bradley, who was a Boston binder. This is a letterhead from his firm. I've just blown up a little section from over here, and he talks about having 80 hands constantly employed so we can turn out 3,000 volumes per day. Now, 3,000 volumes is a lot of books. This is nice, too, because we also get to see he's charging 10 cents for binding Brown's Concordance in 1851. So we get a good um, snapshot of what a typical binding might cost to produce in 1851. 3,000 volumes is a lot of books to put out. This is probably much more likely to be the scene you would see if you looked at a 19th century bindery. You'd have piles of paper everywhere, uh, people working everywhere, it would be crowded, it would be dark. It's easy to see how a text block in here might get knocked around and have those end papers uh, all chewed up at the edge. This is from actually just in the turn of the 20th century, but I think it's probably fairly representative of what you would have seen back then. Yes, question? Women. Yes. There were more women employed at the middle of the 19th century in binders than there were men. Um, most likely because they were cheaper to employ and they had specific jobs that they did. You wouldn't find men folding sheets of paper, you wouldn't find men sewing. You might find a man carrying sheets of paper for the women, um, but it was very segmented in terms of who did what types of jobs. So it would also be easy to put the wrong end paper on a book. You, know, you might be doing 50 sides of one book, then flipping them all over and doing the other sides. And you could, again, easily get distracted, especially if you were using uh, a rarer end paper. I mean, if you're just using a plain piece of white paper, who would ever know? But when you start to use a, a rare piece of, of paper, then you might either get distracted or you might say, boy, I only have enough of one color to do one side. <laughs> this stuff is too expensive for me to throw away or do something else with. I'm just gonna throw another color on the other side. Who's ever gonna notice? And you can see right here that this is kind of the waste edge of the paper. You, you would normally wanna cut this part off too because the design doesn't carry on there. So that may have been the piece that was you know, all that they had left if that was indeed the case. Not saying it necessarily was, but it could have been the case. <clears throat> so the other problem that you have when you go to case in your book is getting it so that it's in the right direction, so that you're not casing it in backwards. 
And I know from experience that this is, again, very easy to do. It's difficult to show on a slide, though, because there are actually two pictures here that I put together. And you know, in Photoshop or other programs, you can easily turn things around. This is where librarians really come in handy when they're showing slides. They tend to be very consistent. So if they're going to put a book plate in, they're going <laughs> to open up the front cover, they're going to stick the book plate in, and they're going to close it again. So here you can see that this clearly was put in backwards. Uh, and I just have another one to show you a little bit earlier. This is 1830. Same thing happens. If you're going to put a book plate in, you're probably not going to take a lot of time to read it. You're just going to throw your book plate in and not really know if that page is blank right next to your book plate, uh, whether it's incorrectly or not. And again, a lot of these probably got sold and they didn't care. But I think sometimes they did care about this. They noticed that it was cased in upside down, cased in backwards, however you want to call that. And so they maybe ripped the printed sheets that were sewn out away from that case and then cased it back in again. And if you were going to do that and you were going to have these little problems that weren't going to be covered up, maybe you put this really fancy, gaudy paper so no one's ever going to see those problems. But if we look closely at this, this spine edge of this interior joint, we can see that the paper is missing from there. And that's usually what would happen if you, not that I've ripped a lot of, of pages out of their books before, um, but it is pretty fun if you ever do it. You generally lose about an inch of the paper right near the interior joint. So I think that this was probably, and again, I'm guessing, probably cased in backwards. They ripped it out. They put different end sheets on kind of distract you and then case it back in again. So now I want to move to stamping or the decoration of the outside <coughs> using some type of ornamentation. Um, you might look at this and say, boy, whoever did the stamping on this did a really poor job. I mean, the book itself is in pretty good shape. So I don't think that the, the stamping on the front cover wore a lot or got picked at or anything else. The problem here is that this is not a piece of book cloth. This is 1836, so again, this 1830 time of experimentation. For whatever reason, this binder said, boy, I really like this cloth and I'm going to use it. Or maybe his wife asked him to use it. Maybe he wanted to differentiate himself from the other people selling Steele's Book of Niagara Falls or whatever Niagara Falls guide they had. So he decides to use this woven piece of cloth as you would use a piece of book cloth. The problem is, it doesn't act like a piece of book cloth. It hasn't been starched, it hasn't been filled. So when he goes to stamp on this, the results are very poor. Again, I don't know why he chose the piece of cloth. And it's very rare to see a piece of cloth used that way when you get into the 30s. The reason that I know that it's a real bookbinder doing this, not just some amateur or someone playing around with it, is this particular cut is a brass die that needed to be stamped with a lot of pressure and had to be heated up. It was not something someone off the street would just say, hey, I'm going to do this today and, and put this stamp on. It was specialized work, so done by a bookbinder. <clears throat> That's not to say that 
Sometimes the problem wasn't the book binder. Here, in order to do this particular case, to decorate it, they're going to do the front board stamping, the spine stamping in blind, the spine stamping in gold, and then the backboard stamping. So they're going to have to stamp it four times. And unfortunately, one of those times, they just make a mistake, and they get the case into the stamping press crooked. In fact, they got it so crooked that it runs off the board, and it actually cuts through the cloth where it's running off the board there. Now at this point, they could just chuck that case. They're making 100 an hour, maybe, and use a different one, and no one would ever see this. But again, 1850, they think this is good enough. We can sell it. Now, why do these things happen? Why do stamping problems go wrong? Well, this is 1855. Um, this is Harper's. This is what the stamping machine looks like. It has uh, some kind of belt system here that we don't see very well. But here's a wheel. So this is being driven by a belt. So it's just going up and down, up and down. You don't really have too much control over that. And it's going up and down maybe 12 to 16 times a minute, which doesn't sound like much until you break that down into seconds. Maybe five seconds, maybe four seconds. So you have to pick up your case from over here, feed it in, let it stand, take that case out, pick up the next one and put it back in, maybe in four or five seconds. Now, you're doing this all day long, so you can kind of lose track, get distracted. If you get those fingers, like he's got them in underneath that, the stamping machine isn't really going to care much that your fingers are thicker than the case. It's still going to go and stamp them. So instead of getting your fingers stamped, you're probably just going to pull them away, and if the case is a little bit misaligned, if you jog it as you're pulling your fingers away, then you get this gold stamp done very off-center. But again, they cased it together and they sold it. If you're doing the spine and you get it a little bit off-center, then you're going to get this crooked spine, this monument to Jackson, which if we look at it just by itself, you can see how it, it kind of leans to the left. And if we look close up, it's actually stamping the title into the board. Of course, the board is thicker than the spine, so it's, it's really crushing down into the board. And I think down here, it's, it's actually cut the cloth a little bit. And you can see a lot of these misstamps. If you're doing gold, you're not able to take it out quickly enough, and it gets just tweaked a little, then you wind up with this double stamp. You know, maybe someone distracted you, you went to grab the next one, it's already stamped, and you said, the heck with it. And so you get a mirror image. She's not holding two swords here. It's just it printed a second time a little bit off-center. And here's a, an example where you're doing blind on both the front and back boards. The front board is stamped fine. The back board has a double stamp. And I kind of hate to show this because, you know, Benjamin Bradley is kind of a hero of mine. Um, this is a book that he did that was actually used as copyright deposit. And maybe that's because they didn't think they could sell it. But this is horribly misstamped. So you can see Benjamin Bradley's name down here in the spine, and then it's a corresponding double one over there. So it's really quite odd. Now this is 1850s. 
and we have all this blind stamping, and we also have a gold stamp on the front here. Coincidentally, there's this big wrinkle in this one, which is not why I'm using this slide, but even later on, sometimes if you weren't careful with how you were pasting something up or gluing something up, you could end up with a wrinkle. But if we take a close look at that gold stamp on the front board, you're going to find that there's a blind stamp that's offset underneath it. And Michael actually talked about this in our class today. He thinks that they used this blind stamp to register the gold leaf that people were putting down. And I'll tell you why I think he's right. They put this gold on so tightly, so it would have covered from here down to here, that because it's offset by an eighth of an inch, then you're missing gold at the bottom. So they're setting it that close. Now, do I think that they always did blind stamping before they did gold? No, I think it was probably the exception rather than the rule. And I think that was because it's, it's another step and it's very hard to line it back up again. But they certainly did it a number of times. So here we see the women working with the gold. And if you look at the cases down here, you can see how tight the piece of gold is that they're putting on for the title. Again, this is woman's work. You wouldn't find men putting gold leaf down on cases. This also is a mid-1850s from Harper's again. And they have to have gold leaf is very thin. I mean, they're, they're pounding and trying to get as much gold as they can out of an ounce. So you have to have covers and things like that on it. You actually need to do that. So these are covers so that the dust doesn't get there. They're re recovering everything they can down here in these little drawers. And here you see some of these pulley systems that are working the big presses. And they're just working them all over. So once the, the steam engine works in the bottom and they set these pulleys going, they're, they're going, these belts are driving things everywhere all at the same time. Must have been a heck of a racket. So here's another example where they've done it in blind and you can see the C over here and the M here and the little bit of the line there. Then they've re-stamped it in gold and they've just shifted that off. It must have been fairly hard to get the registration off. Uh, you could have left this type in the press or the brass stamp in the press, uh, but still, you'd have to feed it exactly in the same spot again. Now, you'll hear people talk a lot about, well, were they glaring the claw? Were they not putting glare on the claw? I think, again, sometimes they were putting glare on it, but it's more the exception than the rule, and this is a good example of glare being used. They would have used a stencil so that they wouldn't put all kinds of glare all over the cloth. And you can see this little haloing that you get here from the excess glare around it. You're not going to notice it in here because the gold is going to be so bright it's going to distract your eye. But you can see the edges of the stenciling from where they're putting glare onto it. What's glare? Glare is uh, basically an adhesive for the gold. It helps to make the gold stick better. Um, now the cloth has some starch and some filler in it, so it, it naturally has some things that when heated up are going to make the gold stick to it. And some people say if you use the case within you know, a couple of days, then there's enough moisture left in the cloth that the gold will stick really well. Um, I think it probably would have stuck okay anyways, but they definitely were using glare sometimes. Now I think they did some type of quality control. Not a lot, more as you get later in the century. And this is a great example. Someone wrote in pencil on the 
the um, free part of the end paper, you know, correct the error in titling. And the error in titling is Joel Munsell and Sons transitions into Joel Munsell Sons. But if you're working in the binder and you've been putting J, M, and S for a long time, Joel Munsell and Sons, you might just do that just out of habit. So they meant for this to be picked off here and to put maybe JMS instead. But no one ever got around to it. The book got out in the market, and then people like me can find it. Now, very rarely would they change a title on a cloth-bound book. And so here they're, they're using a leather label to change the title. I don't know if they're changing the title because they made a mistake or if they're changing the title because they wanted to use this case and it had a different title from the printed sheets they were putting in it, and so they had to change it. But for whatever reason, it was worth the time for them, which tells you how much labor was really worth, to make this leather label attach it to this case so that they could use it. So labor's pretty cheap, materials pretty expensive. I think they were also making cases up. Um, so Robert Mary's Museum was a periodical. You, know, you would bound a year's worth of them. They may have advertised in their periodical, we have cases for binding, in which you could get the case made from them and have your binder put it on. Or they may say, if you send back a year's worth of your periodicals, we'll bind it in a case. So they may make a whole bunch of cases, and they just leave out the last two days of the year. And then they fill those in when they get the case, uh, with the, they get the printed sheets that they want to put this case around. And unfortunately, they chose a really large typeface, which doesn't go with the other typeface at all. And that may mean that this was a case that went to another binder. That binder had to use whatever typeface he had to make this up. I think. Some other times, they had these generic cases that they made up for certain sizes. And they would only put the title in before they were going to put it on the, the printed sheets. So if we look at the title on the spine, it's a little hard to see because it's somewhat faded. You can see how close the edge of the title is to the ornamentation down here, how much room it is there. And same thing here, a lot of space here, very little space there. It's probably meant to be shifted up a quarter of an inch. But because they're working with a case that's been sitting around for a while, they set it up the best they could, and then they did it. The other problem of having a case that you're trying to trim the book to, at least trim the pages to, is you have a hard time judging that distance that you need to trim very well. And so this is the interior of this particular book. The paste down doesn't even come close to covering the edge of the cloth. So the text block was trimmed to the wrong size, which I think also makes it much more likely that the case existed before the book existed. Todd? Yes? Um, in terms of the sizes of books, how regular was, say, a 12-mo or an 8-mo? Would they vary tremendously? I mean, it seems like there's not a lot of tolerance for a pre-made case if when they trim the text block. It's well, I think they varied depending upon how they trimmed it. And I think that they probably tried to set up 
so that they could trim everything you know in the particular batch at one time that way the, the size is set and they just shove the the printed sheets in um, that are sewn and then trim them all off but here they kind of have to guess at the size so once they have those printed sheets trimmed they can then say okay the case needs to be this exact size it's difficult when you're trying to work in the other direction and i think this is an example of that but sizes vary depending upon how they trimmed it. Uh, but you'll notice a lot of books are about the same size. They had pretty standard sizes. Now, if you only saw the book on the right, then you would think, you know, there's some kind of mistake here. Because there's clearly a gold stamp, but it's over another design. And you might think, well, that's kind of strange. Why would they do that? You get a better look at the design, although it doesn't show up very well in slides on the left-hand side. All three of these books are the same. And all three are very different. And the way that you can see that they're different is on the spine. You know, one is dated 1842, one is dated 1842-43, the other's an indeterminate date. <laughs> and this is the token of 1842, bound by Bradley, that didn't sell. The problem with an annual or with a, a gift book, a token, that was designed for a year is when it doesn't sell in that year, your chances of selling it again are pretty slim. So what they would do would be to just massage it a little. <laughs> so if you've got the outside of the binding, you make it look like maybe it doesn't have a date. If you've got the inside of the binding, you scrape off the period at the end of the date you add a little dash, put a three on, <laughs> voila, it's for 1843, along with 1842. <laughs> now probably the most famous example of this is the rainbow, uh, which was put out by a man named Harrison in Albany, and he called this particular binding uh, a patent stereographic binding. And really all it was was a calf binding that he then stamped and made stencils for, and he used the stencils to decorate all these little things. Now I've seen this described by people as being leather onlays, but all they are little pieces, uh, they're not pieces of anything, they're, they're color that have changed the color there to make it look like they're little onlays. Now what actually is a leather onlay is this little round circle with the date 1848 there. Again, this didn't sell well at all. In fact might not have even sold half of the run in 1847. So you change the date on the spine of the book so that the outside of the book looks like 1848. Then you change the title page, you change the preface, and you even have to change the vignette title page. <laughs> and the way that you do that, and again, it's hard to see from a slide, is you scrape off the, 18, the, the 7 part of the 1847, and you can kind of see how the paper's damaged there a little bit, and you print an 8, or you draw an 8, uh, to make it look like it's 1848. So, not truly a mistake, but it gives us, again, another indication of how cheap labor is, and how they wanted to try to sell these books at almost any cost. <coughs> Now this, if you just looked at it, you might think, boy, this is a mistake. It's clearly a Tickner and Fields imprint. Why did they put Houghton Mifflin on the spine? Houghton Mifflin doesn't actually come into being until 1880. So we know that the binding is at least 
12 years, 13 years later than the printed sheets. So we know that this book has been kicking around, waiting for a binding for at least 13 years, maybe longer than that. The new publisher doesn't want to advertise a business that's no longer, you know, it's defunct, basically. He wants to advertise himself, so he puts his or their firm's name on the outside of it, and that's how you wind up with different publishers from the title page and the spine. And if we want to look at something that's an even tighter date range, um, this is uh, illustrated uh, edition of Charles Dickens. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many volumes, but there's a lot of volumes. The two volumes at the left clearly have Tickner and Company on the, on the spine at the tail. The two on the right have Fields Osgood and Company. Now they are Martin Chuzzlewit and the Uncommercial Traveler. If we look at the title pages of them, this changeover takes place 1868 to 1869. Fields, Osgood, and company become the successors to Tickner and Fields. The printed sheets on the left don't get bound in 1868. They get bound in 1869. So it says Fields, Osgood, and company on the, the tail of the spine. The sheets on the right do get printed in 1869, unlike the rest of the sheets which were printed in 68. So it gets the same publisher on the title page as on the spine. This is probably my favorite thing. The last thing a binder has to do if he wants to sign the work, put his name out there, let everybody know, I did this work. It's <laughs> to put a little ticket in. But again, maybe you're putting out 3,000 volumes a day. Some guy's doing this all day long. He gets tired, he gets hungry. Uh, there probably aren't a lot of coffee breaks or anything like that. So he puts the ticket in the back, upside down, as opposed to being in the front, right side up. I wanted to show you one dust jacket to show you that the same things can happen in the dust jacket and on the book. This is a later reprint by Donahue. It's on very thin paper, so it's not as wide when they go to sew all those printed sheets together as the uh, previous one was. So the captured that gets printed on the book, the D you can't even see, the I you can't even see, because that brass that was made to stamp that was made for a wider book. Now when you go to use the brass on the title page, or the uh, dust jacket, excuse me, same thing happens. The C is clearly on the backboard, the I is on the backboard, you don't see that at all. Because it's the same brass used in both places. They also use the same brass title from the front board on the dust jacket. But now they've, they've made the dust jacket look very different. It's, it's more appealing, I think, in many ways. But because they've used the same stamp that they had to cut the N out for the, uh, <laughs> the feathers of the Indian, you wind up with this N that has a piece cut out of it for no apparent reason. <laughs> And the very last book I want to show you, thank you very much for your patience, uh, is a, a much more modern book. This is probably not even 10 years old. Uh, letters from Yellowstone, just to show that mistakes can still happen. If you open the front board of this up, you're on page 23. <laughs> so the first gathering, maybe the first two gatherings, just never got bound into this book. And it starts uh, a little bit late. So that is it.
your choice, John. Well, you I can hardly argue that because the 19th century didn't use it, you can. Well, I like that theory because it's so ingrained in my head now. I have a hard time not using text block. But um, I did hear earlier this week that um, some people don't like the term. But conservators why, use it all the time. Why would that be? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Aaron. Um, I've heard Jan, uh, Jan Storm van Leeuwen say that book block is what you should say because it's not always text. Well, some people would have more of a problem with book block than text block. I just fix books. I don't create terminology. But I, I would use text block if it was me. And I think most conservators would use text block. And it's a text. It's all put into a block. It, it, seems, it seems perfectly reasonable. Yes? Nicholas Pickwood, when he taught his class in pre-1800 binders here, addressed those unfinished, seemingly unfinished binders without the untaken face of the end. He says that's perfectly normal, and that the most common associated mistake with it is the person pastes down the, uh, the blank leaf at the end, thinking it's meant to be a... So he says that there are issues like that. Well, I'm certainly not going to argue with Nicholas Pickwell. Although I would say that earlier, that's probably true. By the time you get to the mid-17th century, I think that it has a functional purpose. You're putting leather on that board, and it's going to pull in a direction. And you want to have a counter pull so that your board doesn't kind of go in this cupped shape, which is going to create some problems for you. So I think that those pace downs were probably meant to be put down. And even if we found 20, 30, 50, 100 of them, it doesn't mean that they didn't intend to put them down. They just didn't put them down. It's hard to know what their intent is. Yeah, I don't think he was, you know, right. He did address that. I'd say from an earlier time period, from you know, 16th century, um, it was probably true. They didn't do that as often. But I think middle of the 18th century and middle of the 17th century. It's not my time period either. So we're looking at 17th century books through a 20th century lens. That is true. How many of those have been pasted down between the 17th century <laughs> and the 20th century? That's definitely this true. Is, you cannot, virtually cannot see an incunable in its original form. It has always been tampered with. The example I like is Donald Farron, mm -hmm. who had an NEH grant to recatalog all the Folgers' first folios. There are 79 of them, and every single one of them has been tampered with. There are no untampered bindings on any of them. Yeah, bookbinders just can't help themselves from doing that. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm as guilty as anyone else. Yes. Well, it's because we don't read. You know, if we read more, <laughs> we wouldn't have all this extra time. The first book that you showed, the album, yep. is that a It's a photograph album, so it has, um, it has very thick pages. And those pages are usually um, open at the top. So there's, there's a map with two paper sides on it. And there's a window in the map and the paper side. You would slip the photograph down into that. And then you would have this photograph that's framed. So one of the ways that you can definitely tell which is up on that is how those maps are shaped. Because they have a, a curved top. So someone made a mistake there. I'm just not quite <coughs> sure who it was. Yes, see. For those of us unfamiliar with book valuation um, and collecting in general, are there impacts on 
positive impacts on valuation in general with mistakes, or are they basically not? Well, I don't know much about book valuation. That, again, is not my strong suit. And as a conservator, a lot of times we, we have this luxury of just saying, well, it's a conflict of interest to say what something's worth. I, I love that. It's, it's a great out. Um, I think that they can be more valuable artifactually because they can tell you more. Um, so I, I worry a little bit more about the artifactual value of the books. Um, and I try to you know, steer clear, but I spend money on books, so obviously I'm, I'm assigning some kind of monetary value on them. But I think they're more valuable sometimes. Yeah, I would say as a book dealer, Well, I'm not in the habit of taking a lot of labels off, but I have <laughs> had occasion to take some labels off of printed paper books. And I have seen a pasted label over uh, an original title that was clearly wrong for the textbook. Um, so that was the case where they, they wanted to use the design from the paper, uh, but they had to change the, the label, so they put that on a lot of times, you're not going to know what's happening. There was a, a slide I wanted to show, and um, I had it in at one point, and I took it out because I don't know what's going on. The paste down does not cover the cloth turn in, and you can clearly see where it doesn't, but you can also see other cloth underneath that. And I think the only way I would know what's really going on is to rip the cloth off, which I've thought about doing many times. Um, but I just I haven't done it yet, and I'm not sure that I want to do it. So I hopefully I have a lot of time to think about that. So maybe <laughs> five years I'll be ripping the, the thing off. But when you're doing conservation is when you can see a lot of these things. It's when you're actually lifting things up, you're prying into the book, and it's the one time where it's really okay to pry into a book. It's it's all right to rip a board off sometimes in conservation because you you have to be cruel to be kind, really, to put it back together. So I think conservators really need to, to one, look at structure a lot. Um, they're the ones that can teach us a lot about structure. And I think they also need to look at these mistakes a lot to enlighten us as to how things were being done. Well, it's nice to know that even sometimes you don't know what's going on. <laughs> Most of the time, I don't know what's going on. I can tell you what a great consolation that is. Um, we know that you have done your duty to RBF, if not RBS, and your country, as the Boy Scouts might say. And uh, we have a small token of our thanks for you, um, which includes a bookbinding mistake. So thank I you love very the poster too. Thank thank you. You. Made by Amanda Nelson and a little thank you card. And please join me in thanking Todd for his excellent talk. And do join us in um, Alderman 109 for a reception and a chance to talk further with Todd. Thank you. <laughs>